Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, here to introduce this week's episode, which is hosted by Quillette founder and editor-in-chief Claire Lehman. Two months ago, the American civil rights group ACLU, which has lately focused its public messaging primarily on transgender advocacy, tweeted out the single sentence, Trans children are perfect exactly as they are. It was intended as one of those viral, feel-good messages that build support for trans children, surely a worthy cause. And the tweet did indeed go viral, though not for the reason the ACLU had intended. Rather, people responded that, yes, children are perfect, at least metaphorically so, the way that they're born. It's okay if they're gay or lesbian, or they're a straight boy who happens to have feminine characteristics, or a girl who happens to be butch. Except in severe cases of dysphoria, these kids don't need risky and untested drugs to delay puberty or induce cross-sex hormonal changes. In this week's Quillette podcast, Claire's guest, writer Bernard Lane, argues that the battle over trans rights shouldn't really be thought of as just another front in the culture war. Rather, it should be thought of largely as a debate about the best way to protect the medical well-being of children. Adults can make their own decisions, of course, but as Lane explains, many children and their parents are being urged to embark on medical regimes that they often come to deeply regret later in life. Many listeners will know Lane from his columns in the Australian newspaper. He spoke to my boss, Claire Lehman, earlier this week over Skype. Here are excerpts from that conversation. So you've said before, Bernard, that the trans issue gets portrayed sometimes as a culture war issue, but it's really an issue about child protection. I think probably the important issue is the evidence for the treatments that are being used in these gender clinics around the world, uh, questions of medical ethics, questions of, in, of informed consent. The unfortunate thing is that in a lot of the mainstream media coverage, it's the culture war that dominates the most pressing or concerning issue is the fact that young children or teenage children are receiving treatments which there is not a whole lot of evidence for. Would you agree? Yes. And just to clarify, the gender clinics will make the point that although they see very young children, sometimes as young as three, they don't do any medical interventions until the onset of puberty. That can still be quite young. In Australia, children as young as 10 have received so-called puberty blocker drugs to interrupt the natural process of bodily and sexual development. The next stage after puberty blockers are the cross-sex hormones or opposite-sex hormones, synthetic testosterone, synthetic estrogen, and they tend to be given around 15, 16 years of age. But you're still talking about relatively young people. The evidence base for these treatments with young people is weak. Although the gender clinics in the mainstream media and trans activists give a very confident picture about these treatments, about the evidence, the clinics themselves, when you look at 
scholarly papers that they're publishing in peer-reviewed journals, when you look at their treatment guidelines, when you look at the fine detail of the patient information consent forms that these kids and the parents have to look at, all of that admits that these are relatively new treatments. There's quite limited evidence. It tends to be short-term. The studies tend to be weak in their design. There's no randomised control studies there. Usually aren't even any studies comparing the medical treatments to, say, non-invasive treatments such as counselling or cognitive behaviour therapy. There's no long-term evidence in relation to puberty blockers, which are typically presented as being reversible. And the emphasis that the clinics put in relation to puberty blockers is that they're merely putting on hold the development of sex characteristics. But there's no evidence about the effect of the puberty blockers on cognitive, emotional, psychological development uh, in young people. Mm. And there's some evidence in animal studies that the puberty blockers may affect cognitive functions such as uh, executive function. Mm. So that's the general picture. Puberty is a time when every cell of the body is going through changes and it's impossible to know ahead of time what long-term effects that any intervention will have because it's a developmental period and we know that in key developmental periods there are cascade effects so one little change in this part of the body will have a cascade effect that affects other parts of the bodies and so on when things happen to a mother when she's pregnant because that's a developmental period a critical developmental period it can have such disastrous effects long term. I'm curious as to whether or not there's any data on how many children are receiving puberty blockers in Australia. Is that kind of data available? Mm. The lack of good data internationally is one of the most striking features of this whole debate about Mm -hmm. these gender clinic medical treatments. And in Australia, um, the gender clinics themselves have released next to no data, really. They release snippets here and there. Mm. I've been publishing data obtained by contacts through freedom of information legislation Mm. because the when I've approached gender clinics in Australia, they've refused to release any good or detailed data. For example, the main clinic here at the Royal Children's Hospital would not tell me how many of their new patients each year were biological females as opposed to males, which is a significant issue because... Mm. One reason for concern is that in relation to this condition, which is now known as gender dysphoria, this distress, this sense of a uh, distressing conflict between your biological sex and this internal idea of a gender identity, um, the the data in relation to that condition, which has gone by different names at times, if you go back some period, some decades ago, it was almost always biological males. This gender distress would begin quite early around preschool and would be sustained and then medical interventions might come at the around puberty or a bit later. Um, But what seems to have happened internationally is that there's been this puzzling flip in the profile of patients. It's gone from a very small number of biological males with the early onset gender dysphoria to an exponential surge in biological females Mm -hmm. and anecdotally the gender dysphoria in many cases, seems to come out of the blue with no yes. no history, according to the parents, of gender confusion when they were young. And so the sex ratio in the data is quite important and the major clinic here in Australia refused to release that data. So I've had to rely on this um, third-party 
supplied data, which is still pretty basic. Mm. Um, it's presumably given unwillingly by the gender clinics. Mm. And it's typically, it typically shows new referrals each year. The exact numbers don't have in my head, but it's something like this. So, for example, the most influential uh, so-called gender-affirming clinic in Australia and the gender-affirming model of treatment is the international model that is the focus of so much debate. It's yes. present yeah. in the UK, it's in, in the US, it's in Scandinavia. It promotes itself as the mainstream model, as the gold standard, but I've seen that disputed Mm. Uh, and I haven't been able to clarify this, but I have seen claims that it's simply not so, and this is a case of self-promotion, and that at least up until recently, the dominant approach was a more cautious watch-and-wait approach mm -hmm. and a reluctance to encourage early social transition of kids, which mm -hmm. means the kids change their hair, their, um, their presentation, the clothes they wear, their names, their pronouns, and they start to live in the opposite sex. And that traditionally had been discouraged because the earlier patient data suggested that most of these kids who had these issues very young would naturally grow out of them as they matured mm -hmm. and wouldn't need any medicalisation. And a fair proportion of them would emerge as young adults in healthy, intact bodies yep. as gay and lesbian, bisexual. Yep. And the gender-affirming model, it sees itself as the only yes. treatment approach. Mm -hmm. and it increasingly regards any alternatives as conversion therapy, which ought to be criminalised, resulting in prison sentences for the yes. parents, uh, for any clinicians yes. who undertake interventions that are deemed to seek to change a child's inner sense of gender identity. Activists will say that a watch and wait approach is equivalent to conversion therapy. What they'll typically say is that we know mm. that watch and wait doesn't work. Okay. But they don't have any good evidence for that, as yes. far as I can tell. Yes. And they'll also say that we know that the affirmative model with, in some cases, these medical interventions produces the best results. And the affirmative approach being that the child as young as two to three is a kind of an expert on its inner gender identity, mm -hmm. which is sometimes spoken about as if it's a sort of immutable soul. But isn't there also this concept that one can change or be gender fluid or non-binary? How can a gender identity be fixed or immutable but also fluid at the same time? Anyone who starts to look into this issue starts to find all sorts of tensions. Yes. And maybe someone can explain it to me better, <laughs> but it seems to me incoherent. Yeah. So yeah. on the one hand, we're told the idea of the gender binary, that there's just two sexes is yep. somehow simplistic and oppressive. oppressive yeah and so we're told that we have to break the binary and that's the context in which people typically talk about a spectrum or gender fluidity which suggests that it's limitless genders hmm. is it by choice it's not clear but when you talk about trans that seems hyper binary yes that's right yeah because the idea is that this child as young as two or three has this inner Let's take a biologically male child. Mm. This biologically male child at two or three has this inner sense of a female identity, mm. which is shown by engaging in female, stereotypically female activities. Playing with dolls. Yeah, exactly. And that child, according to the affirmation approach, 
has the expertise and actually leads the clinicians in a sense. Mm. And hence, any attempt to change or influence or suppress that identity is seen to be an unacceptable violation of this inner truth of this immutable soul, such that the criminal law should, should come law. into place. Yes. But then we have non-binary. And so non-binary, as I understand it, means I don't really care about this binary idea, male, mm. female, who cares? Mm. And yet a recent trend has been for non-binary kids to seek testosterone because they're typically biological females, yeah. to seek testosterone and mastectomy. Wow. So mm. how do you explain that conceptually? Yes. So I think that there's a real tension between, on the one hand, mm. trans, which is super binary, Mm. And on the other hand, the idea of non-binary mm. and gender fluid. Yes, and I, I noticed another contradiction when I was reading a paper about getting rid of gatekeeping in transmedical care. And I noticed that the person writing this article was complaining that one shouldn't need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria for being trans or for accessing interventions that are normally associated with treating gender dysphoria because that's medicalization of a problem which isn't actually a problem it's just the state of being like being homosexual is yes. fine it's not a medical problem yes. but at the same time they're lobbying for increased access to medical treatments well some of the detransitioners talk almost ruefully about testosterone because mm. it confers this tremendous sense of confidence yeah. and um, it can improve sexual enjoyment yeah and remember these are often biological females who were miserable in their bodies yeah quite a few of the emerging group of detransitioners quite a few of them seem to be lesbians and mm. so they hit puberty maybe they're already gender non-conforming they're not very happy with their bodies they start to sexually mature they attract the male gaze they attract mm. perhaps harassment and this is all very unpleasant they medically transition the testosterone kicks in yeah. And it feels terrific. It's euphoric. Yeah. Quite a few of them bulk up, go to the yeah. gym. And, it's a natural yeah. antidepressant. Yes, that's interesting. But also what you're saying about medicalization is very interesting. And there was a moment, I think a lot, probably a lot of people saw this. The American Civil Liberties Union put out one of their sort of multi-line repeated tweets saying trans kids are perfect as they are. And the immediate reply from a number of people was yes. They are. Yeah. So why do they need med medicalization? Yes. And this is one of those tensions. So, yes. again, that idea of a trans immutable soul, other expressions that are used are, you know, my authentic self, my true self. Mm. At one moment, it's simply the affirmation of an identity which has to be affirmed. It's in some ways like a crowdsourced identity because it requires everyone else to go along with the pronouns uh, and the new name, etc. Mm. So... It's a sort of software item in a way, but then the hardware has to change for some people, not for, you know, some of the trans people say, I'm identifying as trans, perfectly happy in my body. They don't go down the medical path and others do. What's the distinction between the two? Why, why do some trans people require medicalization? And the other issue here is the nature of the condition gender dysphoria. Mm. So it's defined in the DSM. The purpose of that diagnosis is to get insurance cover. What is it? Is it a psychiatric disorder? Probably most of the gender clinics today would say it's not a psychiatric disorder. And there's a push to to redefine the wording to make it look less pathological. Mm -hmm. So if you go back a bit, before 2013, 
it was gender identity disorder. Mm -hmm. And the pairing of the word disorder with gender identity was seen to bring the pathologizing too close yeah. to the sacrosanct gender identity. Mm. And so it was reworked. Mm. But is it the same condition? Is mm. it much the same mm. condition? And then it gets called gender dysphoria. And now there's a push to use the term gender incongruence because, again, dysphoria sounds a bit pathological. Yes. And as you say, there's a big push, which is quite closely associated with the affirmative model, to minimise the need for diagnosis on the basis that it pathologizes. And yet, as you say, there's this conceptual tension. What, what kind of medicine is this if it's to be available on demand without mm. a pathology? Is it a form of identity politics medicine? You know, if a person who is anxious or distressed or depressed wants to seek medical treatment, they can go to a psychiatrist and be prescribed some kind of drugs that help regulate the mood. But a lot of people will go and drink alcohol or smoke pot or that kind of thing to regulate their mood. I mean, this it seems to me that, I don't want to generalise to everybody, but it seems to me that some activists in this area have political views around gender and express their identity how they want to express their identity which is fine but then couple that with recreational drug use of testosterone which makes them feel good that's just my theory and observation not generalizable to lots and lots of people who are genuinely in distress but i don't think we can discount it either well i wouldn't characterize it as recreational drug use i hadn't thought of it in that sense i suppose the way that i've looked at it is that the administration of testosterone is, it occurs in a certain context, and that context is partly medical, and it's partly identity politics, mm. and partly a human rights push. So trans rights are human rights, trans health rights are human rights. So the idea of a diagnosis and of a treatment directed at a pathology or disorder is discounted somewhat by these political and human rights legal concepts. Yeah. But it's certainly an unusual area of medicine. How come media, not just in Australia, but internationally, is so one-sided on this issue? We only ever get presented with the side that is of the view that, you know, what trans activists say is a consensus. There is no dispute. There's no debate over proper treatment or intervention. People are all in agreement when it's an incredibly contentious area, why isn't there more debate in our media? Yes, that's one reason why I started writing about this, because once I stumbled into the area, pretty much the first thing I did was to go back and look at the media coverage over the previous four or five years. And it yeah. looks like the media coverage in Australia really started to kick off around 2014-15. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the pattern internationally too. Yeah, That's around the time of Obama's State of the Union address when he referenced transgender rights for the first time. Okay, It's around yep. the time of Caitlyn Jenner. And it's also around the time when the patient profile flips in the gender clinics and we start right. to see that incredible surge. Yes. Well, the, the surge in patient numbers predates that a bit, but I think that a lot of people really started to notice it. So when I looked at all this media coverage, what struck me was that it's overwhelmingly told as a human, personal, uplifting, positive story. Mm. And that's understandable because a lot of these kids are genuinely distressed. A lot of them are quite articulate and engaging. Mm. The doctors are confident. Mm -hmm. The doctors are engaging. The doctors 
are well-meaning. They're trying to do the best for these kids in very difficult circumstances. And I think also the, the whole issue was seen as a kind of next stage in the civil progressive, yes, yeah, civil mm. rights in, in, in progressive reform and mm. acceptance and removal of stigma. So same-sex marriage had been achieved. The major gay rights groups had become LGBTQ groups mm -hmm. and most of their energy, most of their fundraising shifted into trans rights. Yes. And people in the media tend to be socially, politically, somewhat left of centre, somewhat progressive, mm -hmm. sympathetic to um, the idea of tolerance and acceptance. And so I think that there was an understandable framing of this whole issue as a kind of human rights success story of trans healthcare. But I think that with time, and especially with the emergence of the regretful young detransitioners who say this was an illusion, mistake, this was a yeah. harmful mistake, this medicalised gender change, and my body has been harmed and my health outlook is uncertain. I may not be able to have children. Mm. I can't, if, you know, the women have had mastectomies will not be able to breastfeed. And so once this sort of material started to emerge, the media coverage should have self-corrected. Yes, but, but it, it hasn't. By and large, it hasn't. Mm. Mm. And I think it's a major failure yes. of mainstream media. My impression is that it's worst in the US. Yeah. It's pretty bad in Australia. Yeah. It's pretty bad in New Zealand. It's pretty terrible in Canada. It's best in the UK. UK. And even in the UK, I would say that still overwhelmingly the uplifting human rights positive framing mm -hmm. in which any kind of scepticism is dismissed as bigoted and transphobic, yeah. that approach is still dominant, I think, in the UK. Yeah. It's just that in the UK you've had a number of outlets and journalists who have been extremely effective and dogged yes. in their investigative work. And I think the UK institutions are also more robust, the law courts. So if you look at the Kira decision Bell. in the Tavistock case mm. of the English High Court in the case brought by Kira Bell, who was, I think, 23 at the time, mm. uh, and the Tavistock Youth Gender Clinic is the only specialised gender clinic for young people run by the government health system, the NHS in the UK, in England and, England and Wales, I think. And if you look at the judgment in that case by those three High Court judges, it's very impressive because mm. it shows, I think, that they have really come to grips with the evidence, a wide range of evidence and not just one side. Mm. And it's quite sophisticated in its handling of the issues. I mean, there is an appeal. You know, it's possible aspects of the, the legal reasoning will be tinkered with, I suppose. But it's hard to see how the central finding about the very weak evidence base, such that puberty blockers and perhaps by implication cross-sex hormones, our experimental treatment to which yeah, yeah. kids, especially under 16, are really going to struggle to give informed consent. Yeah. If you compare that judgment with the landmark judgments in Australia's family court, yeah. which liberalised access to these treatments yes. uh, and were celebrated in the media in Australia, the I would think that any independent person reading those judgments would say that the Tavistock ruling is by far the more persuasive yeah. and detailed and sophisticated and realistic approach to the issues. And by contrast, the family court judgments appear superficial, hearing from only one side. So, for example, there was a judgment in Australia's family court that meant that kids seeking puberty blockers under 18, of course, no longer had to go to court to get the judges to certify mm -hmm. that the kid was sufficiently 
mature mm. to give consent. And these proceedings were all conducted in utmost secrecy. The hospitals are not identified. The expert witnesses are not identified. An unnamed endocrinologist just asserting that these puberty blockers have no side effects. Really? So this yeah. has happened in Australia's family court? Yes. Australia has a slightly different situation. And the way that the gender clinics saw it was that there was a discriminatory legal obstacle mm. between these distressed kids and the life-saving treatment. Okay. And the, the state of affairs was that even if the doctors and the parents agreed that it was a good thing for the blockers to go ahead, a good thing for cross-sex hormones to go ahead, good thing for, say, mastectomy under 18 to go ahead, mm. they still had to go to the family court yeah. and have a case, which is expensive and there's delay, mm. and they had to have a case and the judges had to decide whether or not the child was what they call gillic competent. And so this is yes. this idea of um, sufficient maturity to understand what's at stake. And gillic competence is the same common law concept at issue in the Tavistock ruling in the, in the UK. So there was a kind of a human rights campaign in Australia to get the family court to remove itself okay. from this supervisory role, which right. was seen as unnecessary because supposedly the family court had never handed down a ruling saying, no, this child is simply not mature enough to go ahead. Okay. So it was seen as redundant, expensive, okay. et cetera, et cetera. But the problem, I think, you know, and according to critics of the affirmative model, critics of these family court decisions, is that up until a quite, quite a recent case in 2020, which is a complicated case and I think a misfire as a test case, up until that point, the family court had not heard competing expert evidence about the risks or downsides mm. of these treatments. They had mm. only heard from the very confident doctors mm. saying that the state of medical science have, has advanced, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And really, I'm talking about a period running from some of the key, the two key cases I'm thinking of, 2013 is the puberty blockers case, 2017 is the cross-sex hormones case. Even then, there was, I think, plenty of, I don't know about plenty, but there was sufficient material on the record, public record, to raise serious questions about the... Um, impression in those court cases that there was consensus and good evidence for these treatments and and minimal risks but one important point here is the suicide narrative and this oh, is relevant yes. to the mainstream yes. media coverage yes. as well yep. and it's relevant to why i think there's been a suspension of normal journalistic scrutiny yeah and arguably normal safeguarding and normal standards of mm. medical evidence because um, the affirmative model has really emphasised the supposedly extraordinarily high rates of suicide risk in this yes. group. Yeah. Uh, and so if you're a parent and you're being told, we're going to give your child these drugs, they're off-label, we don't know about the long-term effects, we do know about some serious side effects, for example, puberty blockers and bone density, uh, which has implications for osteoporosis. Puberty blockers interrupt the building of adult bone density. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The theory is that when the opposite sex hormones come in, that that will be rebuilt. But I'm not sure that it's been established that that happens. I'd be curious to have another look at that. But so, I mean, in that situation, if you're a parent, it's a very stark black and white choice. These medical treatments here, which have a low evidence base, but that's the only treatment available. Mm. And if we don't go ahead with those medical treatments, there's perhaps a one in two chance that our child will commit suicide. Yeah. But when you look at the studies on yeah. which the suicide claims are based, they're mm. very low quality studies. 
And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin. I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, Bittrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. Well, it's not that surprising that the suicide rate for transgender individuals is higher than the general population. What I find intolerable is this assertion that the intervention will somehow magically fix this suicide risk and as far as I'm aware there's not much evidence that says that's the case. People who experience serious distress will be at higher risk of suicide and unfortunately interventions often don't have the desired effect which is to reduce that distress and we can see with people who have detransitioned that they still experience serious distress about their bodies, about their identities. And so this claim that the intervention will somehow magically reduce suicide risk is a form of emotional blackmail. I think you're right that there are problems at multiple levels. There's a kind of de facto official suicide risk study in Australia. Mm. It's an anonymous online survey. Overseas, there have been instances where with people stating that they've attempted suicide. The survey would involve follow-up at least over the telephone. Yes. What exactly happened, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And, the, and you find that when you properly scrutinise claims of suicide attempts, they tend to reduce the incidence. Mm. And I've looked at the suicide studies typically quoted by gender clinicians and activists internationally, and they tend all to be low-quality, anonymous, online self-selecting sample yeah. which means yeah, that not representative. They've, they've put a survey on a website and have said if you are trans come and fill out this survey so it's self-selecting for people who are trans and who are happy about being trans who and who may have benefited from intervention but then it's potentially filtering out people who didn't have their distress reduced when becoming trans and there's often no indication that the people reporting trans identity and and attempted suicide were diagnosed with gender dysphoria. I think the best way this has been put to me is by Ken Zucker, who has very long clinical experience working with kids with, back then it was called gender identity disorder, in a clinic in Toronto. He also has a very serious research track record. He's the editor of the Archives of Sexual Behaviour. Mm. And what he said to me is that 
there is no evidence at all that a child diagnosed with gender dysphoria has a uniquely elevated suicide risk by virtue of that gender dysphoria. Mm. Dr. Zucker believes that the most likely reality is that those children diagnosed with gender dysphoria, obviously they have an elevated level of suicidality compared to children at large, but Mm. his hunch is that it's probably much the same level of children you'd see in clinical settings uh, with a diagnosis of depression. That's interesting because the kids in the gender clinics, especially this recent surge, they have multiple other issues, Mm. such as autism, sometimes undiagnosed, perhaps family trauma, sexual abuse in the background, Mm. depression, Mm. and all of those issues could give rise to suicide risk. What is actually creating the suicide risk? Is it a gender thing? Mm. If you treat the gender issue, are you leaving untreated these other conditions, which may be the real source of the Mm. suicidality? Mm. And I think you made the point about the outcome measures. So there's no perfect studies of this, but the study that's normally cited is, I think it's 2011, it's a Swedish study, and it's unusual. As I understand it, the Swedish national medical records are quite good, and and so the researchers were able to pull together data, quite comprehensive data for adult transsexuals, as they were called then, Mm. and they showed that after full medical transition, hormones and surgery, the transsexual people had a much higher rate of completed suicides, not just suicide risk, than the general population. Mm. And you can't can't conclude that that's because Mm. of the trans medicine interventions. The study doesn't allow you to do that. But it's certainly not encouraging. You know, anyone with background in psychiatry or psychology would be able to tell you that you know, there's no magic bullet for people who are suffering severe distress. Yes. Sort of packaging of transgenderism and the interventions around it as somehow, you know, this magic solution to people's yes. distress is really quite problematic. And psychiatrists have said this to me. They, they said, you know, it's not unusual for children to threaten suicide, mm. but we have established ways of dealing with this. Yes. And the idea that a threat of suicide should open the gate to rapid access yes. to the desired hormone treatments is not an idea that is safe yes. for those kids. It's surprising to me that there's not more medical professionals who are sort of taking a stand on this. You mentioned the media coverage. The medical professionals operate in an environment where they see that the affirmative model has been presented as a human rights triumph and any criticism of it or scepticism is framed as hateful bigotry, transphobia, which will increase the suicide risk of these young people. So nobody wants to be publicly pilloried as a callous and hateful bigot who is driving Mm. children to suicide. Mm. And there's a big difference between what health professionals, a whole range of them who are involved in this area, psychiatrists, psychologists, endocrinologists, counsellors of various sorts, there's a stark difference between what they're willing to say publicly on the record and Mm. what they will say off the record. It's clear to me that since I started reporting this, what is it, coming up for almost two years now, there's been a marked change, an emergence, and not just in Australia, of a greater number of medical professionals with relevant expertise, as well as people in the wider health and medical community who looked on at this in some puzzlement for a while. And those voices are starting to be raised. And one one good example of that is a group called the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, which I think I was the first to report its existence in 2019. So 
they had been working behind the scenes and they were no doubt apprehensive about going public mm. and but they have and they've been interviewed by the economist magazine now for mm -hmm. example yeah there's an excellent piece in a publication called medscape this article has come out just in the last few days and it's a a very up-to-date and detailed survey of the debate about the affirmative youth gender clinics mm -hmm. about the questions of evidence uh, the risks the questions of informed consent and i've been watching with, with real interest the comments thread on, the, on that article because there's quite a few uh, people typically post a description of their area of medicine or their area of health and and you see a whole series of medical professionals expressing concerns and mm. identifying some of the contradictions and gaps and risks in the affirmative model. So these things are changing. I do think that this will probably have a snowball effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the emergence of the detransitioners has been very important. I think mm. that's encouraging more medical professionals who've been watching this with apprehension quietly behind the scenes. Mm. It's going to encourage more medical professionals to come out. Litigation is going to bring more people out. Yes, I was going to mention litigation. You would think that that would be a key tipping point if some doctors are sued or some clinics are sued as they have been as one has been in the uk yes this is constantly talked about there's been not exactly litigation in the sense of medical negligence but these issues end up in court in various ways canada's had a case in which a father was opposed to the medical transition of his daughter i think it was a biological female child and he was subject to an order that he not talk about or identify the medical professionals involved in the transition he violated that order and was given a six-month prison term oh my gosh so that's one example in australia in a state that we're not allowed to identify australia's a federation the removal of a child from a family was confirmed by a court on the basis that the parents not going on with the child's preferred pronouns the child's trans identity this was mm -hmm. a biological female i think she was about 15 or so when she okay. identified as trans and the parents didn't want to go along with it and were worried about testosterone i don't think testosterone treatment has started but that went to court where the, the government child protection authorities brought a case and the basis of the case was in effect that the parents unwillingness to go along with the medical transition of this child constituted a form of abuse or neglect or failure to protect the child mm. and so that child was taken into state care wow. and as far as i know that's the first such case in australia mm. i'm told by people in the us that this is happening mm. it has been happening for a little while yeah. at various levels you know mm. state and local jurisdictions where child protection authorities mm. come in and often the the family background is often very complex in these cases like the, right. the, the case in i'm talking about in australia the parents were united you know, the, mm. the mother and the father both thought they wanted mainstream, open-minded, exploratory, psychological examination. They admitted okay. the girl had problems. Yeah. Um, they didn't think gender, medicalised gender change was the answer. Wow. And in many cases, many other cases around the world, when teens um, seek medicalised gender change, the family context is, context is often profoundly troubled. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, not just divorce, but yeah. um, sometimes the children have been, have grown up watching, um, witnessing family violence. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, some trauma or know, abuse in the past. Yeah, very, very complex family situations. And um, mm. that, that fact I don't think has got through in the media coverage because mm. there are psychologists, psychiatrists who look at that very complex 
family context, sometimes intergenerational with questions of trauma. And they say, there are many different issues here. The affirmative model tells us that we focus in on the gender issue. That's the source of the distress. That's what we treat. Mm. And the objection of these psychologists, psychiatrists, is family therapists, is that we need to look at everything. The gender issue may not be the overwhelming issue. Mm. If we focus just on the gender issue, are we missing the true issues, which will just go underground? There'll be a euphoric period because the child online and perhaps by the gender clinic has been given the impression that, yes, your issues are gender. We know how to fix this. Mm. There's a period of euphoria. Is it sustained? You know, I mean, again, there's very little long-term, even medium-term follow-up on this recent group. People who are trans tell you that their medical care is lifelong. Do we know how many detransitioners there are in Australia or is that one of these data points that's mm. completely murky? I think the numbers are quite small. In some cases, they call them desisters as opposed to detransitioners because mm. they identified as trans, sometimes for a number of years. They didn't get to the hormonal treatments, mm. but they stopped identifying as trans. And yep. in some cases, they they decided that the trans identity was a mistake. I know of a number of cases involving autistic girls in Australia. So they're not strictly detransitioners. The, the number of detransitioners appears to be limited, but we just don't know. And there's a kind of a contradiction. On the one hand, the gender clinics and the trans activists are almost mocking. They say, where, where are all the detransitioners? Mm. Where are they? As soon as someone tries to research detransition, they mob them, try to get them sacked and try to stop yes. the study going ahead. There's the famous case of James Caspian in the UK. had worked with LGBT patients. Mm. Was in, I think he was involved in transitions. And then he mm. started to hear, this is some years ago, he started to hear about cases of surgery regret of transsexuals. Yeah. And he thought, well, this is something that should be researched. We should mm. know about this. Of course. And so he tried to do a master's. I think it was at Bath Spa University in the UK. Yeah. And they allegedly said, no, you can't do this because it's politically incorrect and you'll come under attack from trans activists. Right. And I think he's in litigation with them. Lisa Littman, physician and researcher from the US, who's you know, associated with the famous hypothesis of rapid onset gender dysphoria, this trans identification driven by social, social media and peer groups. Mm. I think she has been researching detransitioners, but no doubt under a lot of pressure because mm. the trans activists and the gender clinics seem to take the view that it's not enough to have lots of positive stories of successful transition. You can't have much publicity at all about the misfires, about the regret. Yeah. The affirmative model rely on regret figures from the Dutch clinic, which is the the clinic in Amsterdam, which in the 1990s pioneered these medical treatments of mm -hmm. puberty blockers, cross-sex yeah. hormones, and surgery for young people. And on their face, they look like quite low regret rates, under 1%, but there's lots of problems. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you talk to the detransitioners, the first thing they'll say is that the moment I decided that it was a mistake and I was going to go off testosterone, the last place I wanted to go back to was the gender clinic that had harmed me. Yeah. So they have very large... Yeah. Um, rates of loss to follow-up yes so yes, there's one study sense. used mm. by the dutch which over quite a period of time and it claims this you know regret rates under one percent mm. and i think the loss to follow-up is about 30 or 40 percent the other thing is that they define regret or detransition in quite narrow ways mm. there's one kind of anecdotal proxy for the rise in detransition well, there's a number actually one is the reddit 
subreddit forum for detransition. Okay. And when I started reporting in mid-2019, I think that had about 5,000 members and it's now okay. about 20,000. Are yeah. they all detransitioners? We don't no, know. No, yeah, of course. But if, you know, let's assume that some proportion yeah. of them are, there's something going on. Yeah. The other thing is that if you look at look online, because the detransitioners have been pretty much ignored by mainstream media, mm. apart from Kira Bell, they, there's many detransitioners who've gone online, they set up YouTube channels, they, they're on Twitter, mm. and they've formed a number of groups. There's a... There's a couple called post-trans yeah. and they're two young women, I think one Belgian, one German, mm -hmm. and they have produced a document which is aimed at detransitioners because one of the big issues here is that the detransitioners have particular health and emotional and psychological needs, which they say are simply not being met yeah. because all the focus is on transition. Mm. And so this new brochure, which has launched, I think only last couple of months by post-trans, tells their stories and it also tries to provide a lot of information to help these people navigate detransition. And also quite recently, I think the last month or so, there was an international panel discussion out of Brussels, Yeah, a whole number of detransitioners groups. So on social media, I often get trans activists tweeting at me, where are all the detransitioners? Yeah. You know, so well, the idea is that, you know, it's mm. not a thing. It's mm. not a thing. I think it's clearly a thing. Mm. And, and I think maybe one of the best comments that I've seen about this is the gender clinics and the trans activists imply that the detransitioners are a tiny, tiny percentage. Therefore, the implication seems to be they don't matter. But oh, trans people yeah. are a very small yeah, proportion yeah. of the population. Yeah. You know, what are they, 1% to 2% maybe? We don't know. Oh, it'd be less than that. And I think also there's a kind of a moral duty because they went through a process which promised them mm. um, a positive outcome. And the feeling of the detransitioners is that, that that has not been delivered and that they've been harmed. And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling non-fiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast. But life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. 
it's just so surprising to me because it's the opposite of what normal medical care is supposed to be. So if you go into surgery, elective surgery, cosmetic surgery, for example, the doctors will sit down and tell you that they can't guarantee that you'll be happy, that a certain proportion, a certain percentage of people won't be happy and will never be happy because they're perfectionists. The doctors have a responsibility or a duty of care to their patients not to get their hopes up too high because there's always disappointment mm. after medical interventions. This idea that the experience of detransitioners is somehow irrelevant, it just flies in the face of normal medical care. The people worried about this area would say that it's not like any other area of medicine. If you look at the way that courts and legislators approach these issues, for example, so-called conversion therapy laws, yeah. which according to the critics, seem to be seeking to entrench the medicalised gender clinic approach as the only permissible approach mm. and are threatening prison terms. Therapists who would offer what five minutes ago most people would have regarded as legitimate, open-minded, compassionate therapy. Mm. And so this whole area is highly unusual. One way I've seen it put is that the affirmative model is not really a medical model. Mm. It's a hybrid medical identity politics model. Well, I can't think of any other areas in which medicine has been politicised. The treatment of homosexuality would be one. Yeah. I think one other reason why the media scrutiny has been defective and one other reason why the um, medical colleges, especially psychiatrists, have succumbed to arguably a lower standard of scrutiny in this area is because of a sense of historical guilt in yeah. relation to homosexuality. Yeah. So. That's a really I good forget point. when homosexu homosexuality ceased to be a disorder in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the mm. Psychiatric Diagnostic Manual, only, quite recently, yeah. 1970s maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think probably even more recently than that. Yeah. I remember reading in a textbook, my mum's textbook, when she did psychology at uni, that I remember reading about homosexuality as yeah. a, under a paraphilia. Yes. Mm. Yes, and so the relationship between gender clinics and psychiatrists is a slightly awkward one for that reason. Mm. The use of the term conversion therapy, of course, that, that really is a term that applied decades ago to attempts to suppress a gay sexual orientation, yeah. including the use of aversion therapy. Mm. I guess you'd call that a physical intervention if you're using electric shocks, yeah. if you're yeah. using a, a drug and emetic. To make someone mm. sick while you show them you know, arousing pictures. Mm. The irony is that it seems quite possible that some proportion of these kids today who identify as trans and go down a medical path are in fact lesbian, gay or bisexual. Who may just grow up to be happy in their bodies, yes. healthily functioning gay adults. Yes. And so there's two paths. One path is free of medicalization, gay bisexual, lesbian. The other path is the trans path, which is medicalised. I mean, it's not always medicalised, but, you know, some proportion of the kids who identify as trans and are distressed mm. are medicalised. And so you would want to have a way to a sort of a differential diagnosis, if you like. Mm. But the problem is that the kids are set, the ones who are going to go on the medical path, they're set on that path as early as 10 to 12. It's quite possible that during that whole period of adolescence, sexual identity can be rather fluid. Mm. It's, it's developing. Kids are trying out various things. It's not established. Mm. But 
based on limited data, it looks like pretty much all the kids who start on puberty blockers, which were promoted as reversible, pretty much all those kids will go on to cross-sex hormones, which are admitted to be at least partially irreversible. Mm. And can, can cause infertility. Yes. So if the kids are set on the medical path as young as 10 to 12, how can the gender clinics or anyone pick up which kids don't need to go down that medical path? Mm. They're gender non-conforming. They just need to be accepted mm. and they don't need medicalization. And the problem is that the condition of gender dysphoria, if you look at the book by Abigail Schreier, uh, mm. Irreversible Damage, if you look at the work of Lisa Lippmann, the allegation, the claim is that kids are coached online mm. in the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria. They can persuade therapists mm. that they have gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the gateway to the hormones that they want. There's no blood test for gender dysphoria. Yeah. How do you prevent overdiagnosis? How do you mm. make sure that you're not diagnosing gay kids? My understanding is that there isn't any good quality evidence to show a biological basis for trans identity. Maybe there yeah. will be one day, but there isn't yeah. yet. If you look at fMRI images mm. of men and women, you can notice some very small differences in brain structure you can identify someone's sex from a brain scan. And I've read a study that suggested that transgender individuals had a more androgynous-looking brain structure as seen from a scan and that you can't actually tell the gender. But then, you know, that was a study with six participants, extremely yeah. small sample yeah. size. And I've been told that there is no strong evidence that there is any kind of neurological or biological uh, signal and mm. that it's all just, all of the data just shows noise, basically. Yes. I think there was a major survey of all of those uh, imaging studies recently, mm. and the conclusion was that, as you say, there are lots of them are very small sample sizes. Yeah. And when you adjust for the male-female differences, a lot of those apparent differences just disappear. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the lack of a clear biological basis for trans identity, I mean, you can't rule out that mm. researchers will find one one day, the lack of that biological basis is why the trans activists have arguably co-opted so-called intersex. Yeah. Which is really yeah. something the, completely the very different. term implies that it's a third sex, but my understanding is it's, it's not. And intersex is really a, this umbrella term for Extremely conditions rare. to do with disorders of sexual development That's or right. differences in sexual mm -hmm. development. And in the vast majority of cases, there's no doubt about these people being male or female. You know, some of the intersex activists are quite angry at what they see as the exploitation really? of their mm. real medical conditions mm. in order to mm. give a kind of a biological gloss right. to trans identity. What I want to finish on is the parents. I've often wondered why there isn't more compassion or consideration given to parents of children who are going through these issues. I mean, any parent knows that you would be highly distressed or concerned for the welfare of your child if he or she had a diagnosis or was experiencing gender dysphoria. And I just wonder why the parental experience is erased from the story yes. so often. Well, I, I think it's a function of the black and white, highly moralistic view of mm. the affirmative medical model and the way in which that has been, I think, uncritically showcased and promoted in mainstream media. Mm. And parents I've spoken to said that they simply couldn't find any information yes. apart from vague, upbeat 
yeah. material in favour of the affirmative model. Mm. And the line from the gender clinicians, not all of them, but from some of them and from the trans activists, is that there's two kinds of parents. Mm. There are supportive parents and there are unsupportive parents. Wow. Yeah. And supportive means going along with the affirmative model mm -hmm. in the medical treatments. Yeah. Unsupportive, everyday meaning of that, you know, the ordinary person would think that means that the unsupportive parent doesn't care what's going to happen to their kid. Yeah. But these yeah. parents who are sceptical about the medical treatments care profoundly yes. about their kids. Yes. It's just that they don't believe that this sudden identity and the treatments that the child wants to express this authentic identity. Yeah. They don't believe that that's in the best interest of the child. Yes. They want more information. They want more treatment options. Mm. And, um, and they are profoundly angry yeah. at being portrayed yes. as bigoted yes. and hateful yes. and unsupportive. And if you look at some of the things said by trans activists, it implies that the only parents who have any scepticism about the gender clinic treatments are conservative, throwback Christian parents. Yeah. But I've spoken to lots of these parents and they have an incredible range of backgrounds. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that this is simply a, a right-wing religious mm. objection is absurd and insulting. Is. And is there a way for parents who are going through these issues to support each other? Are there support groups yeah, in places like Australia? Again, this is very interesting and mostly unreported, but, uh, but in the time that I've been following this, what I've noticed is ever-increasing growth in parents' groups and networks. And some, from a kind of a cultural politics point of view, what's happening is quite remarkable. And mm. it's also extraordinary to me that more media aren't interested in this because mm. what's happening is that you've got a significant minority of gay lesbian adults who are profoundly alienated from the LGBTQ establishment groups, which mm. they now see as hostile to same-sex rights yeah. and as essentially trans-activist organisations. And so in mid-2019, the very first LGB alliance was set up in yeah. the UK. Yeah. And so this is LGB alliance without the T and without the Q. Because their argument is that if we all have this gender identity that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our biology, then there are no homosexuals. Mm, There's mm. no same-sex attraction. And mm. a man can identify as a woman mm. with a penis and insist that he's a lesbian. And this is actually happening. Yep. When I first heard this, I thought it was satirical, but it's mm. not. Mm. And the lesbians who resist the overtures of such a person mm. are deemed to be transphobic and to have a genital fetish. And so this group, the LGB Alliance... And these people are mainstream gays and lesbians. Yeah. Some of them were involved in the very early days of the gay rights movement in the 1970s. Mm. And there are now, I think, 15 or 16 chapters of this oh, really? group wow. all around the world. Mm. You know, that mm. is a staggering development mm. to me. It is. And pretty much unreported because the media, most of the media is still locked on to this idea that there is such a thing as the LGBTQ rainbow community which is completely united mm. in the trans rights project as the next logical success yes. after same-sex marriage. Yes. And that is not so. Mm. Um, so those groups are elaborating and they are cooperating with parents' groups, wow. including parents' groups, just ordinary suburban people who normally wouldn't be engaging yeah. with LGB activists, yeah. but also radical feminists, yeah. left-wing activists, yeah. mainstream professionals. Because yeah. one of the striking things is that among the parents who are suddenly finding a teenage child declaring a transgender identity and wanting medical treatment, mm. among those parents are medical practitioners. Yeah. 
Yeah. And some of them go along with it and some of them don't. Mm. Um, so the parents groups are networking internationally and quite recently they organised the first um, protests about gender yeah. clinics in yeah. Australia. Those yeah. took place, I think, only a week ago mm -hmm. in Hobart, Melbourne and Brisbane. Mm. And these kinds of protests bypassing what's seen as media silence or media yeah. misrepresentation mm. began in the, I think, in late 2020 in the US yeah. and they're spreading. I think, yeah. uh, I think Israel is coming soon, some in Canada too. One is called Parents of ROGD, I think. Okay. Yep. So that's a reference to the Lisa Lippmann hypothesis of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Another group is called Partners for Ethical Care. Mm -hmm. That's a US-based group. Yep. Um, there's the LGB Alliance group, and they're concerned with um, same-sex rights and not just with what's happening with the kids. Yeah. Uh, but they have a particular focus on the kids. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, a report was leaked from the Tavistock Clinic in which clinicians said or asked, are we medicating gay kids? Yeah. Yeah. Are we medicating autistic kids? Yeah. So the LGB groups are focused on that. There is a more radical group now in the US called LGB Fightback, and they have staged some protests. And I think they staged protests in concert with ROGD parents. I better check that. But certainly what is happening is that there is this very unlikely... Alliance. A lot of it is underground. Mm. These people are terrified, a lot of them, of being uh, exposed and identified. Okay. The other really striking development, and it's very recent... Oh, and you know about it, of course, because of the Quillette articles by Angus Fox. There's been an understandable focus on the biological females in the clinics mm. because they are perhaps two-thirds of the caseload now. Yeah. And um, as we were saying earlier, this wasn't a condition that affected biological females. Mm. And I think it's completely legitimate to focus on the girls and because yes. they have particular issues in puberty and when you think about it, early exposure to online violent porn. But a byproduct of this has, has been that there's another group of often quite intelligent, nerdy boys, sometimes autistic, not necessarily diagnosed. And these boys, according to their parents, are not gender non-conforming, but they're identifying as trans and okay. they're wanting to go the medicated route. Yes. And the, the parents, it's typically the mums, they're getting organised. And they've released um, over the past month or so a whole series of first-person essays. Mm. Um, and what's striking about these mums, and I've been in contact with some of them, is that they are highly educated, very socially progressive, typically Democrat voters, profoundly disillusioned with the Democrat Party. Yeah, okay. Because under Biden and Harris, the Democrat Party is rock solid in favour of the affirmative model and the queer theory style of trans rights. That to me is a very striking development. The essays by these mums are anonymous, but they're they're powerfully expressed. And you know, you've had those pieces, is it four pieces by Angus Fox? Yes, and there's in more Colette. to come. Mm. And um, I imagine they've had a big response yes they have. yeah 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 so i think that's a very significant phenomenon i think there's a lot of developments whereby we're starting to see a bit of a chink opening up mm. uh in this you know years-long suppression of debate thank you so much for the work you're doing at the australian bernard you're a real leader in this country on this topic i imagine you, you hear from a lot of parents who thank you for the work that you're doing i would encourage anyone who wants to read bernard's columns to subscribe to the australian thanks for the opportunity claire if you would like to support quillette please consider becoming a patron head to our patreon page that's patreon.com forward slash quillette if you haven't already follow us on social media we're on twitter facebook and instagram do you like what you're hearing 
Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.